0: I would first like to thank you as the congregation at Riverside Church as well as our staff for giving me the leave this past week to do some bull drum redfish fishing on the coast of North Carolina. It's become an annual event where I meet mostly with a bunch of reprobate older guys and try to do a little ministry on the beach. And I caught some fish, plenty of fish. So thank you for that leave time. Uh, And unfortunately, I've come back with something of a frog in my throat, so I ask you to be patient with me. This morning's text is about fishermen, coincidentally, James and John. And as we hear this text... Keep in mind the context in which the story is told for it comes immediately after Jesus' third prediction that when he goes to Jerusalem he will be interrogated and abused by the religious authorities there only to be handed over to the Roman civil authorities where he will be mocked and spit on and whipped and finally crucified. They didn't understand it, as it is made clear in this text from the 35th verse of the 10th chapter of Mark. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to Jesus and said to him, now this is immediately after his prediction, they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in all your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized in the baptism that I am baptized with? And they replied, We are able Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the other ten disciples heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers, lord it over them. And their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave or servant of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom to many. This is the word of the Lord. You can't really blame the two brothers. After all, when Jesus had walked by them as they were fishing with their father in the boat, he called for them to follow, to lay down their nets and follow him, and they did they immediately laid them down and left their father in a lurch, sort of abandoned, really. Two-thirds of the production of the family walked off the job and followed Jesus. At that point, they lost their status as two sons in that family and their status in the community, for it was a social taboo to leave your father like that. Yet, there they were. Three years later, with the other 12 disciples, and as they walk along, they notice that Jesus pulls up ahead. So they knew that that was their moment to go and get Jesus by themselves. So they hurried up in front and started walking beside him. Master, they said, we want you to do us a favor. Now that is one of those loaded questions that you really should figure out what's behind it before you answer, which I didn't do early as a father when one of my daughters asked me the same question. Dad, would you do me a favor? Sure. Well, it seems that I need you to talk to Mom about going over to Ellen's house on Friday night. For some reason, she thinks it's not a good idea and I need you to convince her that it is. Uh, Well, I immediately knew that she was using me like an old mule to plow the hard ground of their mother's discipline. And so I said, well, you know, it's not fair to put me in the middle of this. I'm sure she had a good reason for saying no. No, she didn't. That's why I need you to talk to her. Well, in fact, she did. It turns out Ellen was at home with her brother, who was a senior in high school, left in charge as their parents went out of town, only to leave at her house what one might describe as capital T-R-O-U-B-L-E. And so my wife, their mother, made a good decision so did I by not intervening. Jesus had enough sense not to say sure when asked the question, would you do us a favor? Instead, he asked what was behind it. What is this about? They began to say to him, when you reach Jerusalem in all of your glory, we want to ride shotgun. We want to be your first lieutenants. We want to sit at your right hand and at your left hand. Be careful what you ask for, as they say. In all your glory, they said. And as you read the text, you discover that Jesus' glory is not what anyone would want. His glory was about the cross. It was about his crucifixion and his death and his passion and his suffering. That's his glory They expected him to be the messianic king who would come like King David into Jerusalem and save uh, Israel from uh, the the hands of the Roman powers. And instead, Jesus enters Jerusalem and gives up all his power only to die on the cross. And the gospel writers say, that's glory. And Jesus, knowing they still didn't know what they talked about, said, you able to drink of my cup and be baptized by my baptism? You have to know that he was was smiling, that they didn't get it. Sure, they said, we are able. No one likes a teacher's pet, a sycophant, someone who sucks up to the boss and the other ten disciples, grew wrathful and angry at James and John. For doing just that, they could see what was happening. Jesus, never missing a moment to teach, sees all of this going on and says, okay, we need to sit down and talk about this. You know how the world works, he told them. The world works like this. Those in charge will lord it over you and be tyrants over you. But you must be different. In God's world, those of you who want to be powerful must give up your power, and those who want to be strong must become servants, and whoever wants to be first must be last. And then he says, and if you question how that works, look at me, for I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life up for many. The lesson is crystal clear, but not simple. In God's kingdom, if it's power and prestige and status that we seek, then it only comes by serving others, not by getting them to serve us. From this point of view, the survival of the fittest, that evolutionary theory of Darwin, seems to say that you know that's the quickest route to suicide, giving yourself up by serving others. Did you know that hyenas are born with very sharp teeth that serve no purpose? They don't need those teeth to suckle their mother's milk. The only purpose for those teeth is to chew at and gnaw at and bite at all the other siblings from getting to that same milk so that only the strongest of the hyena survives childhood, and the point being that they end up as one of the most dangerous and treacherous breed of animal there is, all because they know that competition that wins keeps them alive. That's Darwinism, but it turns out that Darwin was only half right. Biologists and social scientists now know that, yes, the need for competition and survival of the fittest is instinctual, but so is, if not the same, even more so this instinct that we have toward cooperation and community and fellowship. When we went fishing this past week, it became clear to me that it's not just humans that share this. We know that elephants and dolphins do, but also apparently birds. For as we were fishing with 12 rods and lines in the water, a large pelican became entangled in one of the lines, went straight into the water, and could move no further. All 12 of us immediately came over in mass with deep concern and worry now these these are irascible fishermen you know, they hunt deer they, they yet all of them ran over immediately in concern for this pelican two went out in the water way up to their waist the other with the reel slowly tried to reel him in so that he wouldn't be too entangled or suffocated uh, as soon as we got him close enough one of them threw his jacket over the head of the pelican to calm him enough to grab his giant beak. Three of us went around outside and tried to get the line off which we finally had to cut. Freeing that pelican felt better to us than every all every fish we caught that week. What's that about? And the neatest thing about it, the most touching thing, is that when we were doing it, there were his flock circling overhead in obvious concern for this one who was down, calling at us not to hurt him and to set him free. Built into the nature of life, life itself, yes, Competition and status and power and winning, but also, I think, at the deepest level, the God gender, excuse me, God gene level is this sense of cooperation and community and fellowship that comes when we are most godlike. The sad thing to me is that sometimes the church loses sight of this, for we become competitive too. And oftentimes we dream of ways of more status and power, uh, ways of more prestige. Uh, They're the wrong dreams to have. Six months ago or so, um, a church that preaches a particularly uh, strong sense of the success gospel mentality in Atlanta happens to be an African-American church. The pastor there, his name was Creflo Dollar, had to go through much public ridicule when their pastor, Dollar, told their 10,000-member church that he needed to raise $65 million to buy a Jetstream aircraft so that he could preach the gospel. When he received a lot of heat, he preached the sermon next week, some of which he said, You cannot stop me from dreaming. I'm going to dream till Jesus comes. And here's another thing I want you to understand. If they discover life on Mars, if you think a $65 million plane was too much, if they discover that there's life on Mars... They're going to need to hear the gospel there, and I'm going to have to believe for a million-dollar space shuttle because we got to preach the gospel to them too. He went on. I dare you to tell me I can't dream. If I find Jesus, I'm going to look at Jesus until it comes to pass because with God, all things are possible to him that believe. Dream on, baby. Don't dream for what you can have. Dream for what the devil says you can't have. Dream for the best. Dream for the best healing, dream for the best deliverance, dream for the best house, dream for the best car. Just because the world don't have it doesn't mean you can't have it, for you are children of the almighty God. Dream, dream, I say. Now hear me clearly, I can understand how this resonates with those who have been left out of the hierarchy and power and status in our culture. But to me, at least, it only reinforces the powers and principalities of injustice and status that help those folks feel like they were in the cellar in the first place. Jesus, will you do us a favor, they asked. And I reckon on some level, a $65 million airplane is only relative. For every church through history and every one of us as Christians has asked this question hoping to gain something from Jesus. Each of us. Yet in the end, Jesus still loves us completely. His life and his death on the cross reveals that to us ultimately. That the only real power and status that matters is that which comes from the awareness of how much each of us are loved by God. That does not mean to leave everything status quo and the poor poor. It means to love and treat others as God has loved and treated us, serving and honoring and helping others gain their own human status as God has done for us in Christ. Friends in our Western democracy, The powers and authorities do not so much lord over us as they tempt and entice us to give up. To give up to entertainment and technology, drugs and alcohol, the idols of narcissism and and the promise to empower us through self-activation and find self-worth through any means there is. And to live and win that Darwinian challenge. That's the lie. In September on Saturday, the day that Alabama lost the football game to Ole Miss, the professional women's golfer were also playing in the Solheim Cup in Europe. It was the women, women's equivalent of the Ryder Cup in a match that was won uh, between an American golfer uh, and Suzanne Peterson. The American golfer putted uh, toward the hole and missed it by 18 inches, leaving it that far. In almost every circumstance, by integrity reasons, by sportsmanship reasons, the other team gives you that putt. It's called a gimme. It's conceded. And so as the putt came to a stop 18 inches from the hole, all the other three golfers turned and started walking away. And the one who had just putted it reached down and picked up her ball. And the judge of the whole said, the match remains all square. And Suzanne Peterson turned around and said, no, it's not. They're one down. We did not give her that putt that she just picked up. Steve Hubanks wrote about this in an article uh, that came out and also as it relates to Alabama football. He said... Nick Saban, the Alabama football coach, who probably didn't watch a second of the Solheim Cup, Solheim Cup, said this just minutes after his Alabama team lost to Ole Miss on Saturday, and a couple of hours before Peterson pulled her stunt. He said, "You have to decide: Are you going to be a giver, or are you going to be a taker?" I think you are going to be. I think if you are going to be a great competitor. You've got to take what you want. You've got to compete that way. Eubanks continued, Maybe that philosophy works in football, but in golf and in life, a game where integrity means more than scores, not being a giver might win you a hole or even a match, but in the end you lose so much more. Friends, we are an incredibly resourceful church. Many of you are privileged and and carry a mantle of status and power. And what Jesus is saying to us is as we dream about what we can do and use with that power, the question at hand is, are we able to use it in the same way that Jesus did? Are you able?